Hey, how are you? Hey, I am doing pretty well. It's been kind of a hard week. I've been, I've had that cold. I think I mentioned last week that I had a cold and I was going to sniffle in your ear the whole time. It's still here. Uh, I'm coughing and hacking. I don't really have any other symptoms other than I feel like the back of my throat is like ground hamburger. Yeah. Yeah. So other than that, the week's been great. Lots of fun things happening in our family. All's well, but I am tired of coughing. That makes sense. I hate coughing. I absolutely hate it. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. So tell me you're better than that. I am definitely better than that. I don't know oh, that good. that says much, <laughs> but uh, I, I am doing great. We went to a membership meeting at the church we think we're going to land at, and boy, everything that he said at that membership meeting, I was like, yep, yep, that's what I want. Yep, that's, that's it. That's what I need right now. Wow. So it was great. So I'll be honest, I think what's going to end up happening is that we're going to end up letting my daughter go to one church and that the other three of us are going to go to a different church because my daughter has really connected at one of the two churches we thought we were going to land at. And the other three of us really need something very different. And so I never thought that I would be okay with that, but in this moment, that feels like the best option of a series of imperfect options. Hmm. That's an interesting place to be. I've been somewhere similar with our family. I know that we were at one church. My oldest son was really connected there, and the rest of us just hadn't really connected. And we had this option to go to another church that we had some friends at, and they were doing some really cool things, and it's actually the church we're at now. And so we held off on making that switch until my oldest had graduated high school, and then we felt a little bit better about him being at one church and the rest of us being at another church. But having lived that, I actually find that it's really fun to come back together and talk about, hey, how was church? What did you learn? What is what's going on? And it's actually a really rich and fun way to reconnect as a family. Yeah, it had never been my intent. But as we were transitioning out of the church we were at before, my daughter started going to this one church's youth group, and she loved it. And she's developed some really good friendships there. And so, again, I think one of the things that has happened in my life is that I have stopped looking for the perfect option and started being okay with the fact that sometimes all options are not perfect, but that doesn't make them bad. Mm. Yeah. I'm so glad that you're talking about this openness and this flexibility because I feel like that is the exact attitude and approach that Miroslav Wolf is encouraging in this chapter. And this chapter really pushes against the things that we would find comfortable or normal and invites us to think about it in a brand new way. So I feel like that attitude is a really good segue into 
our next chapter of Exclusion and Embrace. I was thinking as you were saying that, that I wish that there were some sort of award for segues, because that was a perfect segue. Well <laughs> done. Thanks, um, thanks. Um, uh, could you tell the you know, local news agency to which I've applied that I... No, I'm kidding. That would be a downgrade as far as segues go. <laughs> Speaking of alligators, it certainly is raining out here, uh, is the sort of segue I expect from the... Uh, I now think, by the way, that the award show needs to be the the segues and... and uh, in, uh, in the podcast division, I think you've got a shot at okay. win, winning yourself a Seggy. I'll win a Seggy in the podcast division. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I would like you, but, I, since you do all the graphics for our show on uh, social media, I would like you to design a graphic of what a Seggy award would look like. I will do my best. Oh, man. Yeah, maybe we can post this week asking people what the worst segue they've ever heard was, because I feel like I've heard some bad ones. <laughs> okay. Well, back to my, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're my Boston friend, so I'll, I'll speak your language. Back to my wicked awesome segue. <laughs> so just to remind our listeners, we are going through a whole series on exclusion and embrace by Miroslav Wolf. We are using for this purpose the revised and updated version. And according to the revised and updated version, chapter two is this week's topic, and it is on distance and belonging. And so we want to go through and just make sure we understand the content and then dive into some real-world applications. How do we actually live this out? So with that said... Josh from Missouri, what is kind of your big takeaway, your overarching understanding of what this chapter is trying to communicate? Yeah, I thought this was a fascinating chapter. I really struggled with it until I read the last or listened to the last 20 minutes. So I'm listening to the audible version of this and then going back and highlighting. And it felt to me like he set out an initial challenge. Then he put out a bunch of different random strands of information, kind of following along the story of Abraham and then Paul's use of Abraham. And then I paused it because I was listening to it when I was running and my run ended. And I was like, I have no idea what you are trying to say right now. And then he wrapped it up all really, really well in the conclusion. So I am going to spend the majority of my summary, and I'm going to give the brief version because I think, uh, Josh from Oregon, that you said you outlined this. So I'm going to give a brief version of this, and then I'll let you fill it out from your outline. But I'm going to focus in on the problem he presents, as I understand it, at the beginning, and then the solution that he offers to that problem at the end. And the, the problem that I think he offers uh, relates to Jesus' words about salt losing its saltiness. Essentially, I think Wolf is saying, if a follower of Jesus is too much like the culture in which he or she lives, there is no longer the opportunity to season that culture with Christ-likeness. I'm evangelicalizing what he says quite a bit here. 
Mm, yeah. A lot. Because really what he's saying is if your cultural identity and your religious identity are synonymous, you can't be salt. Maybe that's a better way to say it in his words. And he asks, so then what do we do about that? And he uses the story of Abraham and then the way Paul uses the language of Abraham to really point to these two words that are captured in the title, distance and belonging. And he makes this argument that Abraham leaves his culture in order to be what he was supposed to be, in order to gain the distance that he needed. We don't need to do that. He makes this point that we clearly need, in order to have an impact or to be salt in the culture, we need to have some sort of distance from it and some sort of belonging to it. And the question he really is raising is, how do you live in the tension of those two realities? And I want to pause there, and I'm curious your take on what he has to say about how to live in that tension. First of all, do you think I'm hitting the chapter right so far? And if so, how would you summarize what he says about that tension? Yeah, I definitely think you're hitting the chapter. I was interested, in fact, that you pulled out the salt and light aspect of that. That's something I had not pulled out of this chapter, but it absolutely applies. I agree that you use a lot of evangelical language to describe it. Not that that's bad, it's just that uh, that's very contextualized. Well, and to be honest, I find his lack of evangelical language to be very helpful. Yeah, it really helps to treat the issue as the issue and not get bogged down in our own application of the issue, which is amazing. Because once again, he's dealing with this, yes, as a naturalized American, but he is originally from Croatia and his native land was in turmoil over some really bloody conflicts. And so he's writing this to try to figure out how he can love his enemies in that context. But he also has an awareness and an eye toward the internal conflicts we have here in the United States. But again, it was written many, many years ago. And so he did not necessarily have our present moment in mind. Um, but with all of that said, Yes, he's talking about this idea of both, we need to be in our culture, we need to belong to our culture. There's nothing saying we should reject our cultural identity or disparage the fact that we are, well, you and I are Americans. It's okay to be an American and be a Christian. Absolutely. It's okay to be an Ethiopian and be a Christian. It's okay to be from China or any other country and be a Christian. It's okay to have our cultural identity. But what is not okay is to marry the two as though they're one in the same and say, I, my culture and my religion are one in the same. And I really thought it was fascinating the way he described the fact that there is one God as the basis for all of this. One God automatically indicates diversity. Because mm. otherwise, we would all have our own cultural deity. There would be the American God. There would be the Indonesian God. There would be the Nigerian God, right? And we would just go around and there, every nation state would have its own deity. 
But that's not how the world actually works. There is one God over all peoples. And so that doesn't mean we leave behind our cultural identity, but it does mean that there's a plurality of cultures represented within the body of Christ. And exactly all of that implied from the fact that there's one God. He even says, we can't leave our culture. Like, you know, I loved that piece he said about how, you know, okay, so what does this mean? Does this mean all the Christians need to leave their culture and create some sort of third culture that is just the Christian culture? And he says, no, that's not what it means at all. And that's actually what brings us back to the Abraham story. Because as you said, there's the Abraham story, but then there's the way that Paul kind of reworks the Abraham story. And if we were to Mm -hmm. just focus on the Abraham story, we would believe we have to leave our culture of origin and form a brand new people of God. And that's the way that this spiritual reality works. But Wolf points to Paul and says, no, we actually need to think about that story in a new light. And so I know you were kind of hinting that direction. Can you give a summary of what you think Wolf is saying, Paul is saying about the Abraham story? Okay. I actually did not take notes or highlight on this part. This is one of the pieces I would actually love to have you summarize because I am not going to get it right. This is part of where I was struggling with, I do not understand what you're saying. Therefore, I just don't have good notes on it. Can you go ahead? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So he looks at Galatians chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 11, and says, this is Paul's reimagining of the Abraham story. So Wolf says he does three things in this text. First, he relativizes Torah. In other words, Torah is not just something for the, quote, people of God. It's not just for the Israelites. Torah is true for all people, but it is insufficient in and of itself to produce salvation. So we need more than just Torah. Then he discards genealogy. In other words, this isn't just a hereditary thing. You have to be a Jew in order to be the people of God. That is no longer the case. And so he sets aside genealogy and says, this is not a national identity any longer. Instead, Paul, in these passages, says, we need to embrace Christ for the sake of everyone. That embracing Christ and giving our allegiance to Christ is a worldwide identity because Jesus died for the Jew and the Gentile alike. This one God over all peoples, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, when we embrace Christ, we embrace a multi-ethnic body of believers who follow Christ. Thank you so much. It's amazing to me, now that I have a better sense of the chapter, how much that feeds into what he was trying to say. This is why I love a discussion about a book after reading it. I have literally read this and highlighted in it and still find it very, very helpful. Even going into what he says towards the end of the chapter, because of all of that, one of the things it means to be a Christian is to have what he calls a Catholic personality. And I loved this idea. 
that inherent within believing in the one God and the theological strand of monotheism going through all of what you just said and the expansion of the kingdom, the expansion of the vision of the people of God that all of that calls for requires us to see ourselves as influenced and informed by a wide range of people who are other or different than us. And what it Mm. means to be a person of faith is that my allegiance to that one God in Christ has opened my heart up in such a way that I take my sense of identity from the fact that I value the other and that the other helps me understand who I am because of understanding who they are. Yeah. I just found that idea of Catholic personality, Catholic meaning universal in this case, just to be brilliant. Yeah. I recently read a book that highlighted this for me, which was Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And it Mm. was fascinating. It was written by two guys that either grew up in other countries or had a lot of missionary experience in other countries. And so they have had their Western eyes given new lenses because of their multicultural interactions. And maybe one case in point, one person told a story about how uh, somebody had come to him as the missionary and said, we have a problem, we need to try to solve this or whatever. And the problem was that this couple had gone off and eloped. And that was very concerning for this group of people. And the missionary was thinking to himself, so what? People do that all the time. Like, okay. And really didn't get the problem until later when they were digging into it and the community was like, they are supposed to respect their elders. They're supposed to obey the authorities that God has put in them. And we have arranged marriages in this culture as if a 20-something-year-old knows what's best for them. We have worked together to make sure we do what is best for them. And they flew in the face of that and disrespected their elders and didn't obey the authority that God had given them. So that was wrong. So it totally changed the perspective of this missionary to say, I have my own Western values that says a person should be able to marry whomever they choose, however they choose to do that. But they Mm -hmm. had a cultural value that actually was a little bit more rooted in scripture than our Western value. And so he had to really wrestle with that and change his perspective a little bit. And that, I think, is what this Catholic personality allows for, is this broadening of our perspectives and this realization that, oh, wait a minute, my culture influenced my thinking there, not Scripture. Well, and this is why his second point in how to live this out is, uh, and this is one of my favorite quotes in the whole chapter, a Catholic personality requires a Catholic community, meaning you can't be the kind of person whose sense of self, whose sense of identity is informed by the other unless 
your actual community involves people who are wildly different than you. Because for, I think, all of us, our ability to appreciate other perspectives comes when there are people we appreciate who are in our circle who then poke at our assumptions. Yes. And the relationship comes first, and then the safety, and then the ability to poke at our assumptions. And so we desperately need those people in our circle, and we are theologically impoverished when they are not there. And that's exactly what he's talking about in this chapter, this idea of mm -hmm. creating a little bit of distance between us and our culture. Not that we reject our culture, but that we allow for that distance to say, wait, my culture is not the only way to live or the only way to think or the only way to interpret scripture. So let me create a little bit of distance while still belonging in my culture. And he says that that creates room for the other. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I love that idea of creating room for the other. And I think our present 21st century cultural values resonate with that. People are striving to make room for the other and or even demanding that we make room for the other. And I love that we can point back to this and say, yeah, that's a Jesus idea. That's not a 21st century American idea. But what is not a 21st century American idea that he says also flows from this idea of distance is an ability to condemn evil in every culture. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that because that's that's a challenge too. Like once we step back and look at our culture a little bit more objectively, it allows us to judge evil as it is found in our culture and it is as it is found in other cultures and be a little bit more honest about that. Yeah, I thought this was a great point that he was making. And he makes this point and then immediately says something to the effect of, and we need to start with our own culture, right? Like this is the, I'm not going to judge the evil in your culture first. I'm going to judge the evil in my culture first. And as I jump into the application, it's very hard for me to think about this without thinking through the application of this. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge the reality of subculture in this conversation. And here's what I mean. In the United States, for example... There are a host of subcultures, and people identify strongly not just with being an American, but being a particular type of American. Yeah. I am a, an evangelical American, or I am a liberal American from California, or whatever. Those are just stereotype ones. The reason I think this is so important is because it is very easy to pretend that we're seeing the evil in our culture by slinging mud at a different subculture that I don't belong to that's still American. Mm. And I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing first. Yeah. I think we're supposed to be acknowledging I have my grounding in this particular culture. And even... I think there has been a developing exvangelical culture. Yes. That needs to acknowledge brokenness and hurt that has brought them to that space. Absolutely. Part of what 
we're doing at the nonprofit my wife and I started is giving people space to share those things. And I think that's very important. But once someone has stepped into the exvangelical world, I think it is now time to start acknowledging there is evil in the exvangelical world. Because mm. that's my culture. And I need to start there, not start with the evangelical culture. Yeah, this brings me back to something else that he wrote in this book, which I thought was great. Let me just read this. This is uh, on, in my copy on page 39. From a Pauline perspective, the wall that divides is not so much the, quote, difference or these you know, different subcultures. It's not that it's it's wrong to be part of these a different culture or a different subculture. So it's not so much difference as enmity. And he italicizes mm. the word enmity. And that, I think, is what is key. And, and as you talk mm-hmm. about the breakdown of these different subcultures, you know, gosh, somebody used the word a couple of days ago. They were not meaning this word. They were referencing this word. But maybe you've heard it. I, I had never heard it. The word libtard, referring to retarded liberals, libtard. And I thought- I have not heard this word. I had not heard that word either. And I thought, what a pejorative word. What an angry, enmity-filled word. And it's that type mm-hmm. of way of referencing the, quote, other, that is so problematic. It's not that we have- Absolutely. It's, it's okay that we have differences. It's okay that we have liberals and conservatives. It's okay that we have people from California and people from Oklahoma. It's it's okay that we're different, but it is not okay to have this enmity between the different groups. And it's that mm-hmm. enmity that we have to break down in order to create space for the other. Yes, this is exactly it. I was driving this last weekend with my daughter, and we saw somebody driving in a truck with a flag attached to the back of the truck that said, Biden sucks. And my daughter pointed it out. And I said, what is disappointing to me about that is not that that person doesn't agree with Biden, but that our public discourse has become so pathetic that we believe that is a statement. Yeah. It's become so free of any actual content. And I think that this is because of this thing that you're talking about. All that communicates is enmity. I don't want to hear Biden spoken of that way. I don't want to hear Trump spoken of that way. It's so easy to throw mud. And that doesn't mean I have a problem. If somebody wants to disagree passionately with Biden's policies as president, that's perfectly fine. And I would enjoy that conversation. If somebody wants to critique former President Trump over his life choices or character or policy, that's fine. But let's actually have some content to the conversation rather than resorting to mere enmity. Yeah. And as best we can to set aside enmity within that conversation. Absolutely. So I I really value, in terms of application, this idea of setting aside enmity. 
But he also wrote a little bit in his own book that I thought was really helpful and in terms of application. So let me, if I can, just read this real quick. Please. He says, for instance, we think America is a Christian nation and democracy is the only true Christian political arrangement. Unaware that our culture has subverted our faith, we lose a place from which to judge our own culture. This mm-hmm. idea that we have it right, we have it figured out, because I'm an American Christian, everybody else has to think like an American in order to be Christian. And if we've married those two too tightly, then we lose the opportunity to critique what is wrong in our own culture. I'm not anti-democracy. I'm not anti-capitalism or I'm not whatever, but are there things that we can articulate from the gospel that would, that would critique aspects of capitalism or possibly even aspects of democracy? Can we grow through an application of scripture? Yes, we absolutely can. And we absolutely should. And we should look for those ways that the gospel is incongruent with our cultural expressions, and we should challenge our culture in that direction. Absolutely. And not the easy ones, right? Not the ones I already believe. The starting out assumption here has to be, I have significant blind spots where I am aligned with my culture, and I need to go outside of my culture to find somebody who can help me see my blind spots better. Yes. You're exactly right. So I'll plug it again for those that are interested in trying to get a perspective from outside our culture. I encourage you to look up Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Fantastic book, very accessible to all of us. Lots and lots of good examples and stories and ways that Scripture kind of comes alive in a brand new way. It got my brain going. I realized, man, I'm I culturally think through that passage the way my culture has taught me to think. It was very, very helpful to me. So if we want to grow in this area, that is one tool that we can use to grow in our multicultural understanding of the gospel. Absolutely. Boy, well, I am so excited that we are going through this. Uh, Do you have any final wrapping up thoughts or are we ready to uh, kind of transition over here? Uh, I, I'm taking a look at our conversation. It, it's nicely wrapped, has a beautiful bow on it. The only thing it lacks is a little gift tag that says, who's this to? So if our audience is out there Ooh. and you really like this episode or any of our other episodes, put a little to so-and-so on this gift and pass it on down the line. We would love for somebody else to join in and listen in. That is your second nomination for a Segi in one episode. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really going for that Segi award. I I don't know what it's going to look like, but I want it on my shelf. (laughs) Well, when you get it, uh, make sure that uh, you post pictures of yourself proudly holding it and the cabinet that you buy to display them in and all of those things. We're excited to see them. Yes. My vanity will be enhanced. Yes, which is really what Wolf is advocating for throughout this entire book. So it's very much on message in this moment. (laughs) 
Uh, all right. Well, with that wonderful misapplication aside, uh, Josh from Missouri, what else have you been thinking about? You know, I have been reading a lot of Eugene Peterson the last couple of weeks. And it's amazing. I was getting ready for our conversation. And the thing I appreciate about Peterson's writing is you can almost literally just open up to any page and there is a great thought on that page. And one of the great thoughts that I just loved from my recent reading is from Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, which is this wonderful meditation on where God is in the world around us and in history. And it just has me thinking some much broader thoughts than I normally think, and I think some much more worshipful and some much safer thoughts all at the same time. So it's just a a wonderful book. Mm. Uh, But one of the things he says that's interesting is that in the story of the Exodus, one of the things that is often skipped over is that Exodus chapter 1 involves this 400 and change year period in which God does not seem to be present. That God is absent from the story for a very, very long time when his people are slaves in Egypt. Hmm. And 400 and change years, that's longer than the United States has been a country. Mm-hmm. Like That's a long time. It's so easy for us to theologically gloss over the moments of God's absence, the moments where we have no sense of what God is doing. And I was appreciative that he began this conversation about what Christ's role in history is with the acknowledgement that there are large chunks of the story of history that we can't quite figure out where God is or what he's doing or what role he's playing, because that's where I live most of my life. I do not live my life in a salvation history high point where seas are being parted and pillars of fire and cloud are leading me forward in my daily travels. I live in these moments where I'm thinking to myself, man, the world is a messed up place. And I'm here, and I know God's doing something, but I don't really understand. And I don't know even if I know what I'm supposed to be looking for. And I know God is here, but he also doesn't feel like he's here the way I want him to be here. Mm. Am I doing this right? Am I overthinking this? Am I underthinking this? Am I missing the obvious? And I just love the fact that Peterson is willing to wrestle with the mess rather than giving me a hallmark answer. Yeah. Yeah. I loved what you said about, I don't live my life at the apex of salvation history. It's not as though these really big moments that have happened over the course of thousands of years are guaranteed to happen in my life. Or if they do, that they're guaranteed to happen every day. That's not how this story has truly played out. We can't expect these very big miraculous moments to be the everyday occurrence. I mean, 
they made the front page news for a reason. They're unique events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I say all of that. I mean, I, I believe in miracles and I believe in all that stuff, but just an ordinary guy living an ordinary life swept up in a very, very long story about what God is doing in the world. And I guess I take a little bit of comfort that it's okay for me to be confused. Yes. But what about you? What have you been thinking about? Yeah. So continuing on, it's funny, a couple of different things converged for me in this thought. One was our conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago on sin and a hopeful theology of sin and our discussion around what are the conditions that make true repentance and life change and transformation possible. Mm -hmm. And so I found that to be very insightful and very fruitful conversation for us. But then I was listening recently to another lecture in the Isaiah series by John Oswalt, and he was talking about the definitions of shalom and mishpat. And I found these definitions really fascinating. Shalom is not just peace, as in the absence of conflict. Shalom is peace, as in everything is rightly ordered. Everything is put in place. Everything is aligned as it should be. The world is put to rights. That is shalom. That is peace. And mishpat, uh, which is the Hebrew word that we use for judgment or justice, these things are kind of intertwined. And there are plenty of scriptural passages that talk about justice in a legal sense or in a righteousness sense. So it's not antithetical. But I'm saying there is another aspect to mishpat that also goes with shalom. It's this idea of being rightly ordered. We even have this in our own culture. We use the word justification to talk about the orientation of our the words on a word document. Is it left justified? Is it right justified? Is it center justified? We use this word justification to talk about, is it conforming to this pattern or that pattern? How is it ordered and rightly established? And the same is true in Hebrew. Mishpat, the temple was built and constructed according to its mishpat, according to its design, according to its function, according to its intended lines and dimensions. And so there is an aspect of peace and justice that is reorienting, rightly ordered, realigned. And if I am dealing honestly with my own sinfulness and my own need for transformation, one way that I can honestly wrestle with that and conceive of that is I need to be put back together. I need all my pieces put back where they belong. I need a realignment and a re-justification. And I need to walk in this world according to my mishpat, according to my own design. That's really good. Boy, that leaves me wanting to ask questions about myself. Man, there is so much there, I think, for pastoral counseling. Mm. 
Yes. You know, when you're sitting with a person, there's the space that you want to be sitting in. Does that make sense? I think so. I th- I think what if I were to define that space, that space is the incongruity between the way you're living and the way you were designed to live. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And again, I, I love this as in the middle of that uh, episode, we talked about language for sin. And I love this as a an expanded way of understanding sin beyond just missing the mark to there's a lot I was designed for other than like just not to kill people. <laughs> right? Um, sure, sure. And so if we think of this as what am I designed for? That's a really broad and and healthy and I think life-giving question. Yeah. And it leads to shalom. True peace. It does. Yeah. That's good. You're listening to the free version of those lectures that's available on I'm just forgetting the name of the website, but biblicaltraining.org. Biblical training. Yeah. Yes. So this is this is something anybody can listen to. Yeah, 100%. And I encourage, oh my gosh, there's a wealth of information on biblicaltraining.org. Please go and be blessed. There's so much on there. If I could do a whole commercial on that application, I would. They're doing some amazing things and it's all free and it's all to bless and enrich the church. Please go and be blessed. That's awesome. Okay. It's time. All right. Hey, so ladies and gentlemen, it is time for which job? You're trying to steal my Seggy award. Well, no, you still you still did the segue, and and I don't know that that was as good a segue so much as that it was just mocking us. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't think there's any question about which of us would win an award for, you know, sitting in the seat of mockers. Uh, so <laughs> oh, I'm I'm. Pretty sure that I'm I'm pretty solidly in that spot. But that is not the content of this week's Witch Josh question. This week's Witch Josh <laughs> question is, which Josh threw his arm out playing baseball at age 13? Well, we asked our audience to expect that every single baseball question was going to ha- be answered with Josh from Oregon. And wouldn't you know it, I am still the answer to this question. Uh, it's amazing how many baseball things have come up. It's so true. But yeah, that was the end of my baseball career. And that was a bummer. I mean, I so as much as I love baseball, I stopped playing at the age of 13. I was playing for two separate teams. Uh, one was my little league team and one was my, they called it Babe Ruth, like 13-year-old kind of rookie Babe Ruth league. And... I had the same coach for both of them, but because they were two independent leagues, my pitch count was calculated for how many pitches I had thrown in one league and didn't take into consideration the other league that I was in. So even though I had the same coach, he could put me on the mound more than the industry would require. And it did not do good things for me. I threw way too many pitches in one season and completely tore my rotator cuff and needed to do physical therapy and work through that. So 
That was the end of baseball for me, and I've always been sad that I couldn't keep going. But yeah, there you have it. It is fascinating to think where your life would be right now if you had kept on with baseball at that point. If uh, you had only been on one of those teams, hadn't thrown out your arm, your coach had paid a little bit more attention, whatever it was that needed to happen. I'm assuming that you would have gone to some state school, gotten a baseball scholarship. I would have never met you. Your wife would have never met you. This podcast wouldn't be happening. All sorts of things would have been different. Wow. That's like the whole butterfly effect in one 30-second spiel. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Uh, You're probably right. So God, thank you for tearing my rotator cuff so that I can meet Josh from Missouri and have a cool podcast. Yep. You know, between all of the things I said, that was the one you needed to thank God for. Not your wife, just, oh. <laughs> just me. That was, yep. Oh, um, edit, uh, rewind. Hi, Shelly. <laughs> all right, we should end this. I've got some repair to do. <laughs> all right. Are we on for next week? Absolutely. I'll talk to you then. All right. Talk to you then. Bye. <laughs>